0: The need for an alcohol substitute that gives you a little buzz and doesn't make you hungover, that's a universal need. And it really extends far beyond like traditional cannabis consumption patterns. It's for people who have never consumed cannabis before. It's a a great way for somebody to try cannabis for the first time and not have a bad time. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents.
1: What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Luke Anderson, co founder of Can. Luke, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today?
0: Thanks for having me. I mean, I would say I'm doing great, but it is a bloodbath out here. And so I am barely hanging on.
2: (laughs) I love it. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Really excited to talk to Luke, really excited to talk beverages, um, and really excited for West Coast, right? A little West Coast
1: representation. How are you, Brian? I'm doing really good. Obviously, I'm a big fan of beverages and big fan of Cam. But I think Luke. Before we get started, we got to talk a little East Coast West Coast. I may have some East Coast ties, but would you call yourself a East Coaster or a West Coaster?
0: I'm a Boston boy through and through. Oh. I spent 18 years of my life just like in and around Boston, and um, I went to college on the West Coast. Probably done more of my professional career in LA and San Francisco, but. I think there's something that I love about how mean everybody is to your face on the East coast. And I I miss that because on the West coast, everyone's really nice to your face, but a lot happens
1: behind your back and um,
0: anybody in Boston have time for that.
1: Love it. I love it. So let the record state another East coaster and a big, a big one for the East coast with the West coast guys. So Luke, for our listeners that are unfulfilling about you, can you give a little background about yourself? Yeah, I'm
0: a guy who went to college for something and then switched to something else. And whether I was a math teacher or management consultant or a business school student or weed soda maker and salesperson, I, I've kind of just been a career journeyman between industries with the common thread of I love building things and I love building things that I would buy with my hard earned dollars. and. That I would drink. Um, I worked at Jamba Juice in college, so there's a little bit of a beverage through line dating back to 2007. And my dad has been in the restaurant industry, and I consulted for a lot of F and B and CPG companies during my six-year run at Bain. So there's sort of a convergence of career-related factors that led me to be interested in joining my business partner Jake, whose original idea can was, and then also a lot of cannabis naivete. I was not a cannabis user at all, unless it was by accident. And and that was like eating too much of a pot brownie or coughing too hard off of a bong rip I didn't know how to to suck in. And uh, needing to be escorted out of a party because I didn't know how to be high and talk to people. That led me to this this sort of microdose CHC beverage journey. The one other piece of the puzzle is I have historically been a very problematic alcohol drinker. I, I think You know, In my mid-20s, that was especially bad. And I had my first 2-day long hangover when I was in my early 30s. And those of us who know what it's like to party too hard on a Saturday night and then feel it still on Monday morning, know that unless you're really coasting, it can be really damaging to productivity and just general well-being. So even though I wasn't an experienced cannabis user, I loved the idea of a drink that Got you a little buzzed and didn't make you hungover the next day. And uh, in my mid 20s, I thought it was a ridiculous idea. And Jake, you know, when he talked about this, and he, to his credit, he really saw this as a category that should exist 10 years before it really did exist. And uh, I was on the other end of the table saying it was a silly idea because alcohol was enough of a problem for me. Why would I want to incorporate another drug? But everything in moderation even moderation it, it seems like cannabis has helped me personally drink half as much as I used to and occasionally I do have those big like you know 10 drink evenings that I wish I could erase from my memory but um they're a lot fewer and farther between and can is a big part of
1: that I think that's so perfectly well said. And there's so many areas that I'm looking forward to diving in. But specifically for our East Coast listeners that are kind of new, what were those early days like for you with CAN and kind of getting the adoption of getting new users to try a product that maybe is a little more uncommon, right? Obviously, everyone talks about the flower being the most popular one, but beverages are kind of up and coming in some spaces. So what are some of those challenges like in the early days?
0: When I was at Bain, the management consulting firm in London, in the two years before I started CAN... I worked on a lot of projects helping big CPG companies behave more like startups. And the whole thesis behind that type of work was, if you get a cross-functional team of 6 to 8 people in a room, and you narrow the scope of what you're trying to do to one city, one SKU, and one retailer, and you just stay laser focused on that and just keep iterating and iterating until you figure out what works. You'll learn so much by keeping the scope narrow that you can accomplish more in three months on a five hundred thousand dollar budget than a traditional company would in eighteen months on a five to ten million dollar budget. And so we we deployed that same sort of uh, structure in Can's early days and said, let's try to win with a six pack of this two milligram THC three flavor multi pack, and then. Get MedMen on board in Los Angeles, particularly West LA, and then try to, with the least amount of money possible, see the sales just like keep happening. And it was a lot of sampling. It was a lot of standing on the street corner and begging somebody to buy the product. I, I think we traded $10 sweatshirts in exchange for a six-pack that people actually bought from MedMen next door at our Abbott Kinney pop-up as a way to drive volume for a couple of months. And in every conversation we had with somebody after trying the product and staying in touch with them over text message or email, and learning about whether or not they would be more likely to buy it versus another cannabis product or buy it versus another alcohol product, we just kept sharpening our knowledge about at what price point, at at what calorie count, at what sugar content would we be needing to deliver a product for a customer to spend their money and keep coming back. And once we saw that the repeat purchase rate in the early days was above 40% on certain platforms like Ease, we knew that we could raise a bunch of money and then invest that money in truly global expansion because the need for an alcohol substitute that gives you a little buzz and doesn't make you hungover, that's a universal need. And it really extends far beyond like traditional cannabis consumption patterns. It's for people who have never Consumed cannabis before. It's it's a great way for somebody to try cannabis for the first time and not have a bad time. So it was a lot of just like high touch customer interaction, high touch consumer research, and um, fail fast, pivot hard.
2: In those early days, how long did it take you guys to perfect your kind of early onset technology? Because I know that's a staple of can.
0: What's funny is we actually lag behind a lot of the other beverages and how quick the onset is. We report like 10 to 15 minutes where there are some nano um, emulsion providers that that deliver it in like 5 or, or 10. We decided to go with an emulsion that was not winning on onset, but that won on being tasteless and odorless because our consumer was less concerned about healing something really quickly and more concerned that it didn't taste like weed or remind them of a bad cannabis experience they used to have. So we we diligence probably 18 different versions of emulsions and then tested them out in our backyard and we're more focused on taste than on onset. And that was how we made the decision.
1: So kind of expanding on the model, the best thing to happen to drinking since drinking. I love that, right? You, you get the feeling you know exactly who that's connecting with. So is the, the target customer, is it for an alcohol consumer who's looking to adopt? Is it both? How how would you kind of see that way playing out?
0: So in our early fundraising deck, the one slide that really resonated with people the most was 21 out of 25 adult drinkers said they want to drink less boobs. And so unlike most cannabis brands who are trying to carve a niche within the traditional cannabis consumer, we're looking at the alcohol drinker that isn't perfectly satisfied with the amount of alcohol they drink. And so it's a much broader addressable market. But convincing those people to show up to a dispensary is the hard part. It takes a lot of hyper-local field marketing. It takes a lot of really creative campaigns that strike an emotional chord with people who fit certain demographic or behavioral or need state profiles and um because nobody's really done it right in beverage like we we are really trying to figure out how to make this category work we have been a little bit scattershot with the strategies that we have employed to try to get those people in our ecosystem and i still think we're perfecting it like we we haven't yet gotten the targeting and the retargeting down yet and the industry evolving as quickly as it is with the dispensary not being necessarily as monolithic as it was before and with this delta 9 derived thc that's chemically exactly the same but is a lot easier to access being something that we're seeing grow a lot faster than other parts of our business that strategy has to shift every three months um so i think it, it took us probably six months to, to get it right within the dispensary channel in California. And it's taken us four years to really only get it half right for, for what makes it sustainable.
2: So with all those things going on, I mean, how do you balance strategically moving forward with like states like New York coming online? Do you utilize that same playbook that you spent so long learning about in California? Or do you kind of just try to be patient with the whole thing as this uh, hemp drive delta nine thing still uh, materializes?
0: We're keeping the messaging about the value proposition the same, but where we deliver that messaging and how—whether it's like big awareness campaign or like you know hyper local brand ambassador standing by a table—I think that's where we look every single week, month, quarter. And figure out how to evolve the messaging or tailor it to the right place in the right time. I think um, holistically for our business, New York and New Jersey, just winning the tri-state area from a brand relevance perspective is number one. But cannabis is kind of in a meltdown state right now. And so I think like overall, we if if it was two years ago or last year even, and we had the resources that we had and we had this sort of like everyone is investing in cannabis and cannabis is happening kind of a wind behind us, we would be much more aggressive and much louder and prouder about how we're doing it. And because of the macro climate and the industry being in the state that it is, we have to be a little bit more self and a little bit more crafty about how we live in the tri-state area. So the messages are the same. Get a little bit buzzed. Don't be hungover the next day. Hold something in your hand that you're proud to... Hold because it said something about you as a person, and then um, where we deliver that message—it kind of depends on how the landscape is evolving day to day. We care about dispensaries in New York; we want to be first on the shelves in, in all of them. But uh, we're finding that people are buying our product on subscription from our website a lot more frequently than we expected.
1: Yeah, that's been one of the biggest challenges for me in New York is that I've been a big fan of beverages and getting the chance to purchase the products online was an incredible opportunity. And, and I brought those products to uh, a friend's house for, for New Year's and for Christmas. And to see their faces for the first time, recognizing that there's cannabis in here. They asked me, Brian, they're like, will I get high on this? What like what should I expect? So I thought the best way to ask you, Luke, is like for a new consumer who's trying this cannabis beverage for the first time, maybe they've smoked in the past, maybe they haven't. What would you you say from an expectation standpoint on on, on how to go about it?
0: I tell everybody, treat it just like a glass of wine or a light beer. You're never going to feel more intoxicated off a can than you do off of a glass of wine or a light beer unless you have some really crazy tolerance issue. And you know we've made and, and sold and put in consumers' hands more than 10 million drinks over the last 4 years and we don't get any complaints. Um, some people say they don't feel anything if they're like a, a higher potency consumer. That's fine. They, they generally think it tastes good and that it like pairs well with a, a different cannabis consumption experience. But very, very seldom do we hear that somebody felt too intoxicated off of one can. And because they have these cute little resealable lids, you can drink half a can and close it back up and put it in the fridge if you really want.
1: Yeah, that was the experience I got. People thought it tasted incredible and they were then hesitant to believe that there was cannabis inside. And then, then their response was, I need to drink 100 of these. And I was like, well, it doesn't sound like it's a problem now. You're, you're finding something you like, now you're understanding the dosing. And I think can is that perfect beverage for those consumers who are newer to the space and understanding that beverage can be an opportunity for them that might be outside their normal thought process of what like uh, an expectation is from a cannabis product.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's to me, it's like... Canada gets a lot of hate from like high THC consumers that think it's almost like. I mean, on one side, legacy operators who think that can is gentrifying cannabis, like there's something legitimate there that if you peel back the layers about how we built our brand and who we partner with, I think they tend to be a bit surprised and pleased with how respectful we are of the legacy market and legacy operators. But The people who are just like, this product shouldn't exist and it sucks because it doesn't get you as high and like, what bad value for your money? I have two answers. Like, one is we don't all drink Everclear. Everclear is the the cheapest per ounce of alcohol. And if we want it to be as cost conscious as the the cannabis consumers that complain about can want to be on a per ounce of alcohol basis, then like White Claw shouldn't exist. Because White Claw is a lot more expensive per ounce of alcohol. And yet... It has a much higher market share of overall alcohol sales than Everclear does. And then the second thing is like, I don't want to buy women's lingerie. Uh, it doesn't mean that like, I don't think Victoria's Secret should exist. Like, I think it's a legitimate store and a legitimate brand and a legitimate business for women who are looking for lingerie. I'm not the target consumer, but I'm not going to like go on blast and be like, this, I like my underwear to have longer legs. Like it's just okay, don't chop there. <laughs> and and if I go into Walmart, like I'm not gonna go into the toddler's clothing section because I don't have a baby. But it's not like I don't think that baby's clothes should exist because there are a lot of people out there that do have babies. So I I understand from the perspective of someone who likes to smoke weed and get really high, why can might feel like a really expensive way to do that. But it's for somebody who's trying to drink a little less booze, be a little healthier. And and really, I think that's, that's the lane it should stay.
2: It's also for the individual who's looking to consume cannabis and not smoke. You know what I mean? Like there's a the healthiest way to probably ingest something is through the stomach. You know what I mean? Not through the lungs.
0: Yes. And beverages, even though we're a little bit slower on onset, the fact that you can absorb some of it sublingually before it even gets to the stomach, it's healthier for... People who are told by their doctors like you have to stop drinking alcohol because it's bad for you, and it's the exact same behavior. So you know, a seventy-year-old in Florida can take it on the golf course and just pop it in a cup holder. It's it's really great for them, um, but for somebody who is trying to wean themselves off inhalables uh, and maybe the edible like waiting time just makes it a little more difficult for them to reliably predict how high they get. Can is a, a very buildable buzz and. Whether it's a two milligram or a five milligram, you can kind of ladder up um, pretty effectively. And then, you know, we we launched a sub brand that does 20 to 100 milligram strength products um, called Thunder and Lightning. So I got a, a little lightning in a bottle right here, which is a, a yerba mate and ginger and lemon shot that has 100 milligrams of THC. And so we're even trying to offer things under the broader, corporate umbrella of CAN that meet those consumers where they're at, just so that you know we can not be missing an entire customer segment. But it's important to know that we wouldn't put CAN on the front of this. We, we don't even necessarily have the CAN logo on this because we want that logo to stand for we're never going to get you too high by accident. This is a safe, newer to cannabis experience for, for anybody, whether it's your mom, your grandma or you know if if it's your cousin who judges you for being a stoner, that's what we want the can logo to, to be like a, a safe place for anybody who's anti-cannabis to have a positive experience.
1: I think you guys have done an incredible job doing that, especially building the brand because exactly like you're saying, if if the dispensary models where the products are being sold, it's so challenging to compete on those, especially because beverages are, are a smaller portion of kind of the retail outlet. And Building that brand has to be layered with opportunities and challenges, exactly like you're saying. Every market is different. Not everyone affords those opportunities. And beverages is not really the most popular item. So when you're moving and trying to establish new interests and markets, like what are the creative ways your team is bringing to the branding space? New markets like geography or... Like, in, like, like for example, like in New York, you were saying how with the capital markets being down, you're still being interested in New York, but you have to be more creative with how you go about entering those markets and how to position yeah. that brand loyalty. Because can is one of, to me, is one of the, the most recognizable national brands. And I think that's same to me, <coughs> given the fact that how challenging it is A, to do national brands, but B, it's a beverage, right? It's not an edible brand. It's not a wild, it's not a wana, which would be, let's say, more popular amongst the cannabis consumers. So you're talking about a smaller demographic, but you're able to establish national brand credibility, which is extremely challenging, but one that should be praised for.
0: Well, we we did it by starting Hyperlocal to LA. And then for a while we were really an Instagram brand and we invested all of our creative firepower in doing really interesting and funny pieces of social content that you could just kind of consume and share. And we tried to make everything just, you know, standalone as something that felt like it was coming from a friend rather than a brand. I think we're all tired of brands trying to sell us stuff. And, and for a very long time, Ken was unilaterally focused on Instagram and building up a community of people who were like-minded with funny and engaging pieces of content about like hating alcohol, being afraid of getting too high and and existing in social spaces in that weird in-between 2 substances universe. But then over the last couple of years, we deepened our partnership with a production company called London Alley in Los Angeles. And London Alley is one of the most famous music video companies in the world. They did Thank You Next for Ariana Grande. They did Industry Baby for Lil Nas X and continue to do really incredible high production pieces of commercial content for brands like Pepsi. We were lucky enough to have them invest in us really early on when we were on the ground in LA and just sampling and meeting people. And uh, as of this year... We have formed such a deep partnership that we actually merged our media business with their um, production business. And now Tan has the ability to deliver on really cool, culturally relevant storytelling moments by integrating with the product into a music video or into a another brand's uh, you know, commercial. The same way that you would watch a movie, and you would see someone pull open a drawer, and there's a Smirnoff bottle. Or if you're, you know, doing a, a, a commercial for one brand, you may see somebody wearing an item of clothing from another brand. Or you know, if it's not a beverage commercial, maybe someone's drinking a Coke. I think um, you're going to see can pop up globally in ways that are hard to avoid this year, probably more often than it has in in previous years, but in more organic and strategic ways, while we invest a lot of our resources and money and, and human capital in on-the-ground relationship building in New York specifically, so that that global brand awareness that we've invested a lot of, of storytelling firepower in translates into local customer loyalty. And I mean, customers as in dispensaries and stores, and also consumers as in you know people sitting at their apartment and just wanting to sip on one while watching a movie.
1: Yeah, it's so critical because one of the challenges your team faces is that people are just not familiar with beverages. So knowing that that even exists is starting from square one, which is seeing the placement and then building on that habit that this is a brand to trust, this is the establishment, and this is the low dose credence that comes with it to to give people that trust when they're trying the products for the first time. It's also
2: huge that you guys are like uh, curbing a lot of the social stigma, right? Like all this branding stuff we've been talking about really helps to kind of curb that, like. Devil lettuce, kind of that whole entire like prohibition error, thought process around cannabis. Has that been like a core
0: value, or is it like work the other way around? It's almost as important to us as like driving our own brands adoption is mm-hmm. helping move the industry and the social conversation forward. I mean, Jake and I are both queer, and I think we all saw what happened with gay marriage. Is it was like twenty years ago it was really taboo, um, you know. I even got thrown out of a a bar one time for like calling somebody a, a gay slur in my like heavy alcohol drinking days in my early 20s. And it's ironic to look back on that and see that like I'm married to a man now. And I also was really anti weed at that point. And I was like, you know, looking at my cousins who smoked weed and calling them stoners behind their back. Like that, this sort of closeness and familiarity that you have with a social issue and i do think that cannabis adoption is a social issue and a political issue the same way that gay marriage or reproductive rights are the the more thoughtfully you can engage with it but there're just so many people like i think you know uh, by some stats like 80% plus of american adults like don't have a touch point with cannabis in a given year and, and so they're much more likely to have an uninformed opinion about it or think that CBD is like low-strength weed. And, and so we're fighting to try and clarify, A, that cannabis is just as legitimate as alcohol, if not more. And B, low doses of cannabis should be broadly accessible to everybody because they are not dangerous. And if people substituted prescription medication or alcohol with a low-dose cannabis product, we'd probably all be a lot happier and healthier Like just you know, as a society. And so we understand that it's really expensive to take on this entire burden of marketing for the beverage category. But we see this as like, a, we want to be a friend to everybody in the industry because if we get more people pro-cannabis, period, and pro-cannabis for the right reasons, with the right social justice policies related to expungement and you know, fair access to capital for Black and Brown cannabis entrepreneurs and for legacy operators to have legitimacy in the eyes of corporate cannabis,
1: then everybody wins. How many canned beverages should one expect to consume? I know with drinking, right? You were saying ten plus drinks. What would you say from an estimate standpoint? So, to give you an example, I had five or six, I think, on New Year's, and I was starting to feel good, and then I started to hesitate. Is this one of those curves where it kind of uh, accelerates up like that, or it kind of plateaus? So. Luke, what's your thought process on on how many to consume if you're uh let's say a novice cannabis user and just looking to see where those limits are?
0: Ah, man, it's um I never want to recommend that somebody consume too much because I don't want to be responsible for somebody's bad <laughs> cancer. Sure, that's I know I set you up <laughs> for a <laughs> tough one. But I have I have had 10 high boys. Like I I've I've had 50 milligrams of THC from A beverage during a dry January two years ago, and I was not out of control. I was glued to my couch and I was eating Cheetos. But I think when I talk to somebody who's a novice cannabis user, I say, start with one and check in with yourself after 30 minutes, which is sort of how I think a responsible alcohol drinker thinks about like going to a bar and, you know, whether it's like one drink an hour or one drink every 30 minutes over the course of three or four hours somewhere you know, with alcohol, you have this language of I'm tipsy, I'm, or, or, no, I'm buzzed. And you started sober, then you go on buzz, then you go on tipsy, then you go on drunk, then you're this drowned out I mean. and blacked out. <laughs> but like this, this kind of like gradient of alcohol intoxication, we know how to talk about that. We do not know how to talk about that with cannabis yet. It's like you're high or you're not. And for me, I describe like one can as, as if you're buzzed, and like two cans as if you're tipsy, and then three cans as if you're drunk. And you probably want to be careful before having cans four, five and six because you could be at risk of being, you know comatose and not wanting to socialize. but it's a lot better than being blackout and like driving a car into tree.
1: Yeah, 100%. I think that's the type of scale where I think people are, are going to need to figure out on their own. And that's going to take more experience, more opportunities with it. And one of the things that I'm concerned about, and I'm wondering what your perspective is, is the mixing of canned beverages and then alcohol. Because obviously, people are, are, are interested in, in kind of one or the other. Do you see that as a problem, solution? How do you see that going forward?
0: We actually did a marketing campaign in partnership with Kate Hudson's Vodka Company uh, over a year ago. Where we just straight up encouraged people to do what she was doing. And she was like, I'm gonna just pour a shot of vodka in my cranberry sage can and call it like a, you know, cute little holiday cocktail. I mean, we can't officially endorse that as a brand. Like there's some legal risk with encouraging people to mix cannabis and alcohol. But what I will say is people everywhere, can drinkers everywhere report that they are moderating their alcohol consumption successfully because of can like i'm drinking half as much as i used to and some of them are replacing alcohol with can for entire days or weeks or months at a time but most people are actually alternating their beverages like i'm having a cocktail and then oh i'm gonna take a break from the the booze and i'm gonna have a can instead and it kind of mellows me out and it prevents me from getting drunker than i want to get and i have not talked to anybody who had a like debilitating crossfade from can and booze and i think it's because this sort of idea of being crossfaded that's like if you smoke an entire joint and you're drinking you know shots but a joint is like 50 cans and so i think uh, the risk is just a hell of a lot lower
2: yeah, and most users, I think, like that go to a party. Most cannabis users, that is, like they go to a party, they'll have a couple drinks, and they will go out back and maybe take a couple rips off a joint with some friends. You know what I mean? So they're already kind of go hand in hand when you're socializing, anyways.
0: Yeah, yeah. Partying in general is a risk. Even even <laughs> yeah. sober people at parties are, are at risk. It's it's chaos out there.
1: Do you think one of the biggest challenges the cannabis industry has with beverages is that they're not able to tell the difference that the alcohol consumer is not kind of built into the total addressable market of what the potential could be?
0: Yes, I I think that's a fundamental issue. Cannabis industry pundits often think about the universe as people who are buying cannabis from dispensaries today. And if you're looking at the data, yeah, 50% of the drinks that are being sold on a dollar's basis, they're 100 milligram THC shots. I think it's because we're really early and the people who are walking the dispensary floor are much more likely to need 100 milligrams of THC at an approachable price point. But we have always looked at the universe as just like people on the earth. And and we're trying to figure out... you know If you stop 10 people on the street in New York City, and you said, like, do you want to drink less booze? 8 out of 10 would say yes. And if you stop the same 10 people on the street, or you asked them a follow-up question and said, are you a cannabis user? More than 50% of them would say no. And that I think is where the cannabis industry is really missing the point, is how do we figure out how to educate those people and get them to be interested in cannabis? Because I tell you what, we would not have the capital markets in the place that they were if the big cannabis players really made outsized investments in products like CAN that were helpful to recruit people into the cannabis world away from the alcohol world.
1: I think that's so perfectly well said. And the example that I've given is that when you go to a backyard barbecue, everyone usually brings like a six pack of beer. And those people there that are drinking beers Maybe 8 out of the ten, 10 of them don't consume cannabis by smoking. But if you have a cannabis beverage, it might enlighten them to opportunities because maybe they are interested in the product, but maybe they're anti-smoking. I think those people are just not considered in those groups. And I think a lot of people on the internet, mainly on Twitter, get their, their hands up in the arms about cannabis beverages because I think for that same fact that they're not able to think about the, the landscape being the total earth, exactly like you said. So slightly switching gears, what is one product that you your team will never build?
0: Ooh, um, man! I mean, if you asked me a year ago, I would say we would never make a cannabis beverage above five milligrams of THC. But we've started making them under a different brand name. So I think that that's a boring answer. Is like we would never slap the can brand on anything that is more than five milligrams of THC because accidentally having ten to one hundred milligrams of THC as a first timer, that's enough to make you badmouth mouth cannabis broadly for the rest of your life. And so we care a lot about that. I think uh, a product that we would never make is one that's artificial. Uh, I I come from a natural grocery background. I I care a lot about ingredient integrity and heritage. We pick our lemons from a farm in Sicily because they taste better there. We pick our lavender from uh, a Swiss German. Flavor house because they care more about mouthfeel and making things taste less like bath products and more like herbs. And I think, you know, even our sweetener, like we use agave nectar from Mexico because it's just like rich and uncommon in beverage. And it creates this very unique taste profile that feels a little bit sweeter than it is per calorie, to me at least. And I think. We are moving past a world in which it's okay to have like electric blue and bright orange colored drinks because we care about what we're putting in our bodies. So uh, I think a product type that we would never make is is um, you know chemically fortified, artificial, heavy products.
1: Any fears that the branding that you built with with can doesn't apply to this new product? Where for someone like myself who trusts the can brand might not be. Choosing this other product because I don't know the the branding behind it. Any any fears there?
0: Yeah, I mean, like this this hundred milligram drink here. Like, why would I ever want to you know buy something with this logo on it if I've never seen it before? Um, Yeah, that is a fear. But with the same sort of ideology that we started, can we want to do as much like hyper focused experimentation and see how traction is just on the product before we really light any money on fire and trying to invest in the brand and the storytelling. And early indications from this stuff is that enough people are just seeing it on the shelf and they're like, Oh, this looks cool. And then repurchasing it because it tastes good, that I think we will start investing in that storytelling and having that brand take on a life of its own someday. Someday soon, hopefully. Uh, but, but yeah, it's a, it's a very legitimate fear. Like We haven't built any brand other than can, And so who are we to put that out there and, and hope that it does well? Um, jury's still out, but signs point to it. It was probably a good bet. Uh, these products, you make more profit dollars off of them. The customer is more likely to be interested in them. It's not as hard of a sell, and as long as we differentiate in our value prop, and and here it's like we're using really natural ingredients, and it has caffeine in it. I love caffeine and THC together. To me, if even in advance of a brand being resonant with the consumer, people will buy something if it delivers on what they're looking for. And being stoned and high energy, like that's a use case that not very many people are doing super well. So at least we're carving out a niche there and hopefully we'll be able to expand on that storytelling for the Thunder and Lightning brands this year. Do you guys notice a difference like
2: in taste, geographically speaking, in terms of like products that move better in different regions?
0: Yeah. In LA and New York, our more editorial flavors do super well. Um, Like in LA, we had this cloudy apple rhubarb. No added sugar, ten milli- or, Sorry, ten uh, calorie drink that was like a top top seller for two months before we ran out. And when we offered a similar product in Illinois and Massachusetts, it kind of sat on the shelf. I think L.A. and New York, in particular, especially when we're like looking at the Hollywood demographic or the the healthy hedonist customer segment in New York, people go into SoulCycle but are still like going out clubbing. They care more about sugar content and calories than I think your you know random family in the Midwest. Um, and so, it's very difficult to build a global brand and have so many different SKUs with different nutritional and flavor value props existing in, in separate spaces.
1: Cannabis lounges, a an asset for the fight forward of adopting cannabis beverages,
0: huge asset. I just wish there were more of them that were just like edible and beverage focused because I think that there there is a lingering stigma around rooms filled with smoke and the cannabis smell, and I think edibles and beverages are really powerful because you don't necessarily have to deal with that. But it's very hard to make a, you know a, an on premise lounge economically viable as a business without including the high volume flower category. But I think that we'll we'll start to see more pop up. Like if you're seeing non-alcoholic booze shops pop up, eventually you will see like microdose only cannabis lounges that are like more for sober-ish people than for cannabis people. And I think those are going to be really interesting social spaces. my My business partner, Jake, he's dreamed about what a non alc Bar club that allows you to microdose cannabis and psychedelics only could be like. And I think, you know, we're not that far off from seeing those pop up in places like Oregon and Colorado. I think, you know, Amsterdam was a really interesting B1.0 social experiment, but it was so focused on like tripping balls and like, you know, smoking or eating a space cake that we didn't really get to see what the moderation version of that looked like. But I think we're, um, you know, five years away at, at, at most.
1: Yeah, potentially. And I think it also helps with the adoption, right? If you can get a cannabis beverage in a bar and if it's on tap, I mean, it just helps with people seeing it and recognizing that it is part of normalization of the product. Yeah, exactly. What is the most misunderstood thing about your company?
0: Oh, I mean, people say that we're like cocky and that we're like, you know, full of ourselves and we're like, we're just trying to survive. Like I, I mean most beverages like they really struggle to get off the ground. There have been huge companies that have invested hundreds of millions, if not billions, of dollars in trying to do microdose THC beverage at scale and have really struggled. And we're an independent. Like we're just like two gay dudes in LA that like tried to make a weed soda work and it's working. Like be nice to us. <laughs> um I, I think like um you have to pound your chest really hard and try to get the word out there about something when it doesn't exist. Otherwise, it doesn't exist, period. And and we believe that everyone stands to gain so much when it exists, that we're a little bit louder and a little bit more hard to miss when it comes to our marketing and some of the statements that we make. But it's in service of the industry's evolution. It's in service of like a public health and safety issue when it comes to alcohol and the harms that it does on, you know, families everywhere. Um, And so I think like if you just take a glimpse at Can and you have your own biases about cannabis, you might think like, well, you know, that company is annoying. But we're just a, a couple of dudes who tried to make a startup work and continuing to try to make a startup work. And so, I think I'd encourage people to just peel back the layers of the brand and see how much heart and soul it has. Like we care a lot about marginalized communities because we know what it's like to be queer in business and be shut out of rooms or told we're not allowed to talk about our partners. And you know, we've been called f bombs behind our backs um, if we appear too feminine in a pitch meeting, and and that kind of stuff sucks. But we're also still two white dudes who understand just how much privilege being a white dude in cannabis has afforded us. And we're really thoughtful and intentional about how we build our brand around intersectional marginalized communities, specifically the ones that have been harmed by the war on drugs. And so I I really feel like people sometimes misunderstand can as like it's a it's a Gwyneth Paltro wheat seltzer for rich moms in Beverly Hills, but and yes, like they do like our product, and Gwyneth is an investor, but I think um, our product is adored by a lot of people who struggle with like pill addiction and alcohol, and at every income level of every demographic, of every age, of every gender identity and sexual orientation.
1: And um, I think there's something really special about that. Uh, what is one concept you learned operating in the cannabis industry that would shock or surprise others?
0: sometimes you don't get paid. <laughs> like it's like uh, in in business you expect that if you do something that people give you dollars for it. but in cannabis the norm is like maybe. <laughs> and so you know we've had people run off with a hundred thousand dollars and never come back like we've had dispensaries shut down and and just like have to write off a lot of bad debt um, We've made really tough decisions to weather storms and trust that partners who haven't paid us in a year will eventually pay us and I think there's something very very, Cool about that when, um, when we link arms with somebody who's in a financially tough position and say we'll wait for you, like we'll, we we believe in you, but it makes it really hard to do business in cannabis because the the trust factor just isn't there, and a lot of professionals in food science and manufacturing and facility management and distribution and beverage period, they're afraid to come to cannabis because it's just not a safe place to put your career yet. And so you end up with a bunch of really unsophisticated operators who just don't know how to do basic things that in consumer packaged goods are just done like you know, clockwork. And it creates a really structurally inefficient environment. And I think we're in one of those moments right now where that bubble has burst yet another time. But I think you know we should still look at that with a hopeful lens. Like when the tech bubble 1.0 or 2.0 bursts, it's not that the internet wasn't valuable. It's that we didn't need like a million geocities style websites um, and MySpace. It's like it, it's about figuring out like what people actually want to pay for and what people are actually using and enjoying. And, and so I I'm still incredibly long on the near term of cannabis. I think we're gonna see a really rapid turnaround in the next three to five years and and the strong um, brands that that are delivering on something for consumers will survive it.
1: Are there any assets, efforts, or strategies you wish people paid more attention to?
0: I think um, Jake and I were taught how to do a lot of business analytics at Bain & Company. And we're really grateful for that education because they focus so much on consumer loyalty. And whether or not somebody says 6 out of 10, or 8 out of 10, or 9 out of 10 even, Those mean 3 completely different things. If you're answering a question like 0 to 10, how likely would you be to recommend this product to somebody else? And I wish that people before they put their products into the market or develop their dispensary concepts or whatever ancillary services they were providing, they applied that traditional... like, It's only worth doing something if people are going nuts for it. Like 9 and 10 out of 10. That's that's what Bain classifies as a promoter. Um, If you say seven or eight, you're technically neutral um, or kind of passive. And then if you say six or below, you're actually actively destroying that brand's equity because when you talk about it, even if it's like vaguely not positive, it turns people off. So we should only really have products out there in the world that like wow their target customer. And I think there's a lot of cannabis products out there that are just kind of like doing nothing for nobody, and and I don't know. I, we we don't need another uh, cheap flower brand. I don't think we need another like you know, hundred milligram chocolate bar. I think I think we need differentiated and unique products that people say I'm nuts for this for this reason.
1: So future roadmap.
0: I think we're going to be doing. Um, i I think we'll actually do a blockbuster edible in the next like three to five years. Um, I think it, it would take partnering with a really like-minded edible manufacturer who finds value in the can brand. One of our investors is like, you should you should really do candy with two ends and 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 I think um, you know, we but more importantly, perhaps, we think about ourselves as a consumer brand and not necessarily a cannabis brand. I think we might do a low ABV alcoholic seltzer at some point with really interesting flavors that just are uh, getting you a little less drunk. I think there's a market for that. I think, I think this whole like healthy, but also like fun consumer can find a delight in moderation on a lot of substances. And so I think as you see can evolve, you'll see us evolve equal parts cannabis and non-cannabis. And within cannabis, yeah, the beverage and the can brand will always be the hero. But I think you'll start to see us transition into more low-dose alternative categories as uh, the opportunities arise.
2: I will yeah. say your guys' beverages are just awesome without anything added into them from a flavor perspective, you know what I mean? So <laughs> they do a good job. So I like that uh, thought
0: process. <laughs> playing to their strengths. <laughs> we handpicked the ingredients very carefully. It sounds a- like, a- like it. <laughs> Jake and I got in like, you know, multiple friendship ending fights over six or seven <laughs> drops of lavender or like should we use honeydew or cantaloupe for this? Like, Did you bring those, in a third
1: party to, to be the moderator?
0: Yeah, we we had a food scientist partner that we worked really, really closely with for a few years, and she really tragically died this last year. Um, but um, we, you know, we had an amazing balance in the room with a lot of industry experience, and I think um, we've learned. And, and to any co-founder duo, you always want to have like that third person in the room to help check you on your bullshit and your relationship dynamics. Because I might love to swear on this. I don't yeah. <laughs> I don't <think> <laughs> yeah. So so like, I, I love thinking about decision-making forums and iPods. And and if you can make a three-circle Venn diagram of people with different perspectives and then find something that all three of them like, chances are it's a hit
1: that's why I asked who that third person was because I'm sure you both felt very confident about that side, but someone had to be that third party to say moderate and say, okay, I think we're going to do six and a half drops of lavender.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, even when it came to like running our Instagram in the early days, like Jake and I had a meeting with Eliza Robson, who is an incredible designer and content strategist. And we just met once a week, argued about every Instagram post as if it was a consumer product. And we tried to like meet in the middle. And you know, if a, Gen Z woman and you know, more cannabis familiar millennial dude, and then like a non-cannabis millennial dude all found common ground, then the the content performed well. So I think that sort of ideology was really powerful for for us to deploy in all aspects of business.
1: I believe it. When you started your journey in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong?
0: I think Jake got the product right from a dosing perspective, in, in terms of like how do we differentiate from what's on the market and and get like real traction. I think what we got wrong was the timing. Uh, I think we thought federal legalization would have happened this year. Uh, I I thought it was like utterly non-controversial and that Biden could probably use a win. Um, but if we can't even get say banking passed, then we're in a whole lot of trouble for a few more years. So I think. Um, you know timing of capital raise timing of uh, penetrating certain markets I think I would like to go and redo some of those decisions but um you know you make a million mistakes when starting a company and I think Uber and Airbnb got a lot wrong but they they got more right than they did wrong and I hope that we can say the same thing in 10 years
1: before we do predictions we ask all of our guests if you could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation what would it be
0: Oh my god, only start a company, especially only start a company in cannabis if you are willing to give up your entire life for it. It is it is not something that I was prepared for. The you know, my family looks a lot different now. My friends look a lot different now. My day-to-day and what I have to do in order to survive is not at all what I would have expected. Um, and so I, I, would, I would second guess, wow, this would be cool type of decision. And I would only do it if you're like, I could not live with myself if, if, um, if I didn't devote my life to this.
1: All right, prediction time. Luke, I've given you a magic wand. You can change anything. How do you unlock cannabis beverages so that they can reach their potential?
0: So there's this thing called like over-the-counter drugs in CVS. And there's stuff that you have to go wait in line and talk to a pharmacist to get. A lot of the times, the stronger stuff is in the back and the weaker stuff is in the front. In alcohol, there's beer and wine-only establishments and there are full bars. Cannabis needs to have a split where the lower dosage products that are not as dangerous... Are a lot more broadly accessible, and unfortunately, the first wave of that sort of split was CBD versus THC. But that's like saying Lacroix and White Claw are like you know two sides of the same coin. Like one has booze, one does not, and and so it's not about like the absence or presence of THC that makes something safe. It's the potency. So I think potency based regulation and allowing for you know. Liquor stores, on-premise consumption places, convenience grocery, like what we're seeing with the Delta 9 stuff in Minnesota, Texas, New York, like I think that should be just like a sweeping national regulation, and it shouldn't be limited to derived from hemp. It should be based on like the scientific architecture of the product. And if we can get people on board with low dose cannabis being everywhere, there won't be so much stigma around like marijuana versus industrial hemp. Um, you know, cannabis is cannabis, THC is THC. It's just call it paid is paid and regulate it based on how strong it is. Kellen. Uh
2: I completely agree with Luke. Um, I think, I mean, like right now you can't go buy 99% ethanol. We can buy 99% uh, THCA in a dispensary. Um, but I do think that the uh, widespread adoption Of cannabis beverages, like placing them next to alcohol in like your standard grocery store, I think is probably the um, easiest thing to change uh, culturally, at least.
1: What do you think, Brian? I think economies of scale are a real thing. And I think yeah, as inter- interstate commerce comes online and the price is able to come down because we're able to put all the manufacturing in one central location, I think that'll allow for other consumers who are maybe interested, but maybe more price conscious to try these products. And I think the first step is the ability to be direct to consumer. And I think what your team's doing is an incredible thing. And I think, you know, just putting the literally, like you said, the cannabis beverage on your back and pushing forward, I, I think is really important because I think the beverage category is is in the earliest stages for the cannabis industry and only expected to absolutely skyrocket as things continue. So Luke, for our listeners, they want to get in touch, they want to buy canned beverages, where can they find you? Drinkcan.com with two ads. We'll link it up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time. This was fun. Thank you. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com.
1: Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey everyone, it's Ryan from the Cannabis Connoisseur Podcast. If you're looking for ways to utilize cannabis to keep you healthy, strong, and sharp, come join us every Wednesday where we dive into the best ways to use cannabis to optimize your life. Topics include cannabis and athletics, cannabis for productivity, cannabis for anxiety, cannabis for a healthy immune system, and so much more. If you're a curious connoisseur, this show is for you. So please head over to our page and we're looking forward to seeing you this week. Bye.